Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, uh, folks. Uh, Welcome to another uh, season and episode of uh, Wisdom of Friends, and I'm your host, Cal Aras. And today I'm really delighted and excited to be introducing you to John O'Leary. Now, John is only management consultant who has studied New Testament Greek at the Yale Divinity School, lived with the Grateful Dead, and hosted a cable TV talk show. He has also been a musician who opened shows for two dozen rock and roll Hall of Fame acts and shared dressing rooms with the likes of Eric Clapton, Joni Mitchell, Michael Bolton, Frank Zappa, and Muddy Waters. But over the last three decades, John has been uh, immersed in organizational consulting and team training and executive coaching. He's also had the good fortune to work with some of the renowned thought leaders in business, including Peter Senge, uh, Fernando Flores, Werner Erhard, and Tom Peters. Friends, this is a fascinating conversation where uh, John O'Leary talks about his journey from Yale all the way to becoming a rock star musician and then transitioning successfully into management consulting. And uh, and his upcoming book, which is based on his very popular blog called The Business Lessons from Rock, And I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only John O'Leary. Good afternoon, John. Uh, Welcome to another season of Wisdom of Friendship. I'm really excited and delighted that you took the time to be on this program. And uh, let me start off with how we uh, got introduced through a common friend, Ken Bicknell, who was also a guest on this show, and he spoke very highly of you. So I'm really excited uh, about uh, having you on the show. So thank you and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, great, John. So one of the ways we kick off our show is to ask a guest a simple yet profound question. And that is, uh, when you look back at your life, uh, what would you say, is there a particular quotation or life philosophy that you live by? And how have you applied it to your life? Well, I guess I always wanted to have my life make some kind of difference. And um, I always wanted to use uh, my communication skills in some way to help the planet, which sounds kind of grandiose, but that's kind of been my guiding tool. And um, that's been there through my music career and through my management consulting and through my various writing projects. So that's kind of always there in the background. Great. So when when I'm looking at your, uh, reading your background and your profile, which is really fascinating, you've had some massive successes, not only in in the world of rock and roll music, but also management consulting. And and before we jump into uh, some of that accomplishments, I'm curious, where did you grow up and uh, how would you describe your childhood? In other words, uh, uh, how would you say what shaped your values growing up uh, in, in your hometown? Well, I grew up in Arlington, Massachusetts. And it's a sort of a, a bedside community outside of Cambridge, which, which is outside of Boston. And um, 
I think my values were shaped, uh, in, of course, by my parents. My father was uh, very much a uh, very idealistic kind of guy. And I went to a, um, a Jesuit Catholic high school, uh, Boston College High School. And I think that was a big part in my you know, value creation. Now, would you say, John, like, uh, what influenced uh, your uh, segue into music down the road? I mean, I understand that you went to uh, Yale uh, and you studied uh, Greek Testament. Is that right? Well, I studied uh, I studied uh, ancient Greek, and then towards the end, uh, I switched. Uh, I was studying some New Testament Greek, and um, and then I got into a band that uh, changed everything. And at that point, I left academia behind and played music professionally for the next dozen years. So I made an abrupt switch from academia, which really, when I was in high school, I did nothing else but study. And then at, at Yale, it was the same thing. And both were all boys schools, you know, all, all boys, all men school. And then suddenly I was in a rock band and it was quite a change. Let me, <laughs> quite a change. <laughs> And that's what I did for the next uh, dozen years. So, uh, so to, uh, walk us through that journey because uh, one of the questions we often get on our calls is from our audiences is, how do you find your passion and how do you find, uh, uh, you know, your calling in life? And uh, sounds like music seems to be a very integral part of your life. So, what was that moment? Did you do you recall that moment that made you switch from academics to music and joining the band? What what motivated you or what inspired you to uh, become a full-time musician? Well, it probably happened in a couple of, uh, couple of steps. I remember that when I first heard a couple of uh, bands uh, and a couple of artists in the 50s, because I'm old enough to remember Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Buddy Holly and Elvis Presley. I remember somebody once said, and I, I, I've, I've always said this is true, I got a, a terminal case of the rock and pneumonia and the boogie woogie flu. <laughs> and, um, and since there's no there's no known antibody response to that, by the way. So once you get it, it's, it's, it's lifelong and, and there's no hope. So I got that in 1955, 1956. And then when the Beatles came along, and I even remember when I first heard that it was December 26, 1963, on my little transistor radio, I heard... I heard I want to hold your hand, and then that was that was probably the clincher. I knew that that's what I wanted to do when when I when I heard them, it was all over. Wow, that no, that that must have been a fascinating times. So tell us about what was like the rock and roll music scene back in the '60s. What do you remember about it, and how would you compare it to what we have going on today? Well, when I when the Beatles hit, and and most people who didn't live in that era or weren't old enough at the time, or, or I guess actually it was a worldwide phenomenon. I was going to say didn't live in the U.S. I guess they were world famous very quickly. But um, it was it was such an event when the Beatles hit. It was just front page news. And when they, if they toured and came to your city, it was front page news. And when, when they released a record, it was an event. I mean, it was like nothing there's just no comparison to to now. I mean, it, it, the, the Beatles, it, 
it, it was almost, it, you could almost say that there was a time rock and roll began mm-hmm. in um, December 26th, 1963. And for me, it was like a whole, it was, it was, it was so, it was so life shattering that I remember within a couple of months, all of my, my uh, friends in Arlington, if they, if they had happened to play a music instrument, they suddenly were putting together a band. I mean, everybody I knew was suddenly playing an instrument and trying to put together a rock band. That was how profound it was by early 1964. It, it was a paradigm shift for so many of us. Wow. No, that, that can, uh, I can only imagine that must have been like really uh, a massive euphoria streaming across the planet. Uh, no, that, that sounds like really fascinating. So, uh, when you, so when you look back at your life up until now, what would you say was the breakthrough success moment for you? And what I mean by that is, you know, we all have these uh, strategic inflection points in our career, in our lives when, you know, it's the turning point or in other words, life was never the same again moment. What would you say when you look back at your life? Uh, was there like a one or two moments that totally uh, changed uh, or altered the trajectory of your life? That's interesting. I would have to say, in in the domain of music, there was there was certainly, um, you know, the the Beatles experience, and then I got into this band in college, and I think the highlight of that was walking on stage at Woolsey Hall on the Yale campus. My band was opening up for Eric Clapton's band, The Cream. And it was such an earth-shattering event for me. In some ways, I'm, I'm sort of sad that it happened to me so early. I mean, I was, I was 21 at the time, and there's been nothing quite like it ever since. Um, but that, that was the, the most significant uh, musical event in my life. And as far as, um, well, there's been so many other uh, events as far as my... Uh, you know, coming of age as a, as a consultant, as a uh, speaker, as a trainer. I would I would have to think some more about that because I've gone through several uh, transformations since I started doing uh, training and consulting in the early 1980s. And and certainly we'll we'll get into that because that's another uh, arc of your life, management consulting. And uh, just for the benefit of the audience, uh, John O'Leary is the only management consultant who has studied New Testament Greek at the Yale Divinity School. He has lived with the Grateful Dead and hosted a cable TV talk show. So tell us about the cable TV talk show. How did that come about? Sure. I had a program called The Art of Coaching that was shown on a Brookline, Massachusetts, public access television show. And public access, as many people know, um, it, it's, it's mandated that in, in order for, for um, a, a town to be able to have public access cable, I think they have to be able to offer shows to anybody that puts together a, you know, anybody that, that, re- that requests to have a show they give them a show. So, so it, I don't want anybody to think that this is anything special. You can it, you can go to your, your 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 own town and probably get a public access show. But I, I found this was really fun, and I I did it for about seven years, and I interviewed 
people who were coaches of any kind, and that, that could be anything from a, uh, a, a music teacher to a, uh, a psychoanalyst to a horseback riding instructor to a relationship counselor, and I had about 70 of them on over a period of those seven years. And, and some of them were really, really interesting, I must admit. And could you could you share a little bit about what was your experience and what were some of the insights you gained by interviewing some of these fascinating figures in coaching? Sure. Um, I, could gi- I could give you a couple of, of highlights. Um, there were so many different kinds of coaches. I mean, I'll just give you a couple of uh, samples. I was coaching a horseback riding instructor who would, and I don't know if, if other people would get as big a kick out of it as I did, but I realized that that this woman was coaching a student to coach the animal. So there were, there were two generations of coaching going on, and I just found that fascinating. So I was coaching a coach who was coaching an animal. Oh, wow. I, <laughs> so... So she was, so she would be coaching someone who was coaching an animal, and um, those kinds of epiphanies were really fun for me. I, I was also coaching two uh, relationship counselors, and um, they were amazing because as they were talking to me and answering questions, they were arguing in front of me, and they were demonstrating how they work, which is they let nothing go by, that, that that nothing gets swept under the rug. So if they're, if one of them interrupted the other, the other would say, you know, you just interrupted me. <laughs> and, but they wouldn't do it in a sense of bitterness. It would be like they would just clean it up really fast. But I was so taken by that. I've never seen two people operate like that. And it was, I'm sure, immensely entertaining for our audience as well. So those kinds of things were just great. You know, these were our shows and there was always something, something special about each interview. Well, I'm sure. And, uh, and, and the reason I ask is because I have so many guests on the show who are incredible coaches as well. And there have been some fascinating learnings and insights that I've gained uh, by just just getting understanding their paradigms and how they look at life. And as they say, wisdom comes from having multiple perspectives. And uh, so I'm glad you had the opportunity to interview 70 different uh, individuals and, uh, you know, gain some of those uh, perspectives as well. And also, uh, again, uh, for the benefit of the audience, uh, John uh, has opened shows for two dozen Rock and Roll Hall of Fame acts, he has shared dressing rooms with the likes of Eric Clapton, Joni Mitchell, Michael Bolton, Frank Zappa, and Muddy Waters. Uh, any stories, uh, John, that you could share about those uh, th- about those times? Anything that comes to mind that left an indelible impression on you that uh, you would be willing to share with our audience? Well, I have to I have to do some mental sorting to see which ones I can I I, I can sh- you know I, I some some of them are X rated stories, but. Uh, <laughs> Let's see. Uh, well, certainly a highlight for me was uh, playing with Joni Mitchell. Uh, this was fifty over fifty years ago, and uh, she was just beginning to become famous, and was not certainly 
she she was getting um, what what we would call she was kind of getting famous in the underground. So the musicians knew who she was, but the public at large didn't appreciate uh, how big she was going to be. I mean, we could see it, uh, but she was very uh, very humble. But even then, when she did one of her songs like um, uh, Both Sides Now or uh, the circle game, things that we be, she became famous for. It was it was like seeing history in the making to be performing with someone like that, and then you know we'd be we'd be hanging out in the kitchen, you know, of the of the bitter end in between shows, and she would be she would be putting a new set of strings on her guitar every time. She was just a fascinating uh, fascinating human being, or. Playing with the Grateful Dead, uh, we shared a sort of a crash pad with the Grateful Dead in uh, Englewood, Englewood, New Jersey, and they wanted to play all the time, and they didn't care who you were. They wanted to play music, so if you were in that big, we were in this big house with them, and there was equipment everywhere, you got to play with them. I mean, they would, they just wanted to jam. They just, they just wanted to play which is certainly fundamental to, um, I think, any kind of uh, successful organization. They just wanted to play. So, so that was quite, a, uh, quite an eye-opener just to be with, uh, with these groups. And there was never a sense of hierarchy or the good bands that I had an opportunity to play with or the good singer-songwriters. There was never a sense that they, were, they had anything over anybody else. They were, they were just playing. They were, they were just one of the they, they were very collegial and easy to approach and easy to play with um, that's what I remember from that period no that is so great and then uh, that brings up another question and just out of curiosity any of these songwriters did they have a creative process that they followed that kind of like uh, stuck with you anybody uh, from the list that we mentioned earlier like Eric Clapton or uh, Johnny Mitchell what was their writing process or songwriting process if you will or anything did you get a glimpse of uh, anything they did differently that set them apart well I I heard of one uh, I, I always wanted to get close to the Beatles and I didn't I never had the chance to meet any of the the four Beatles but I got to know uh, Pete Best, who was the original drummer before he was placed by Ringo. And I got to know uh, Peter Asher, who lived with Paul McCartney, because Peter was the brother of Jane Asher, who was going out with Paul McCartney for years. And um, I asked Peter Asher if he had a tip for me on how Lennon or McCartney wrote songs. And he said, well, yeah, he says, here's one. He said, Every time McCartney was faced with a crossroads of what should he do next with a song. So let's say he had written the verse and a chorus to a song. And he gave me an example, um, uh, which I've, I forget the example. It was a song off Rubber Soul. And he didn't know what to do. What he, what he would do is he would write, uh, they call the, the, the bridge, which is a third section of a song or the middle eight, which is... Uh, Sometimes after you, you repeat a verse in a chorus, you do a third section, the middle eight, which takes you back to the chorus. So he didn't know quite how he would do it. So he went ahead and he tried different ways 
with with a, with a complete melody and a complete set of lyrics. So in other words, he didn't stop. He just said, "I'm just going to go and see where this takes me." And then, if he wasn't thrilled, he'd try another. And at the end, he'd love, he'd have three complete examples of what to do, and then it would be obvious which one to choose. Does that make? Does that make it sense? Ab- it absolutely makes sense. It sounds like you kind of like don't. Uh stop yourself from from exploring and then you just continue with it and go with the flow and at the end of it you can have multiple versions of what that outcome could look like and then the the best outcome becomes obvious as a is a corrector yeah yeah so, so yeah don't stop just keep going and then you'll have different examples to choose from version 1 version 2 version 3 and if you're and of course McCarty was effortlessly creative so that was that was really an easy process and an appropriate process for him. So I, I've used that every time I get stuck. I go, well, I'll go down this path, and then I'll try some other paths, and then I'll know. Hmm. Well, that's that's really an interesting paradigm right there. Uh, so tell us about your own band. Now, you had your own band as well, correct? Uh, you performed in L.A. for a while, and then you came back to the East Coast. Is that is that true? Yeah, I was. I went out west with my with my band from... Uh, from Yale, we went out to um, California, and we played. It was really a great band, but f- for whatever reason, um, it we 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 broke up the first time a couple of years later. And then we we have we we have reunions. We get back together, but basically, that that band ended, and then I joined another band for about four years, which was a um, um, a, di- a different kind of rock band. And then I joined a street singing band um, and each one was different and each one had a lot of close calls, which is to say we we had a lot of um, we had we had a lot of uh, near misses or uh, I like to I like to say they were almost famous bands. And then I went back east uh, and I put together my own band the Homesick John O'Leary Band, and we played for three or four years in New Haven and New York. And then after that, I decided that I needed to have a more steady income, and I transitioned into being a management consultant, and, and then I did the music on the side rather than rather than playing music exclusively. So that that's a perfect segue uh, into... Uh into management consulting and organizational consulting that you uh, you've been doing for the past many many years, and but before we get into that, uh, who, uh, one question I do have is uh, who were your mentors growing up, or whom did you look up to or wanted to emulate uh, besides musicians? Anybody that fascinated you or that uh, comes to mind that you want to give a shout out to? Yes, uh, my favorite coach. Uh, by coach, I mean coach, teacher, mentor, was Father Jack Howard, uh, who's still alive. He's probably in his 80s now, and, I, and I, I run into him every now and then. He was my ancient Greek teacher in high school. And what was remarkable about him as a, as a teacher and an influence was his enthusiasm was just off the charts. He could make anything interesting. And so I actually think I went into ancient Greek because of he made it so exciting that when I studied it subsequently, and I studied ancient Greek for five years, and it still uh, it still interests me. But I realize now that I got into it because I wanted to be like Father Jack Howard, 
because he would wa- he would walk into a classroom and he was on. It was like he was he was he was hitting the stage at at uh, Carnegie Hall. He just walked in and he he marched around and he he would imitate these uh, Greek uh, speakers. Um, who am I thinking of? Uh, orators. He would he would imitate these famous Greek orators. Even if it wasn't part of the class we were currently studying, he would just go in and out of character. He would act. He would act out um, these. Uh, he, he loved. Um, there was a book uh, called "The Peloponnesian Wars" by Thucydides, and and he w- and he he would channel Alcibiades, who is this Greek leader, and and was uh, famous for his rhetoric and his oratory, and Jack would just. He would just flip into a gear and he would just act out Alcibiades' speeches for a half an hour. And, and we would just be sort of standing there with our, with our mouths open. And we just wanted to be like this guy. He was just on fire. Wow. And he still is. I, I run into him uh, because I, 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 I do some street singing in downtown Boston. And every now and then he strolls through the public garden in Boston and um, and he stops me and I stop playing and we sit down and then and, and, and there he is. He's doing it again. He's uh, when you have a teacher like that, uh, you never get over it. No, that's that's such a beautiful example. I mean, that's what the best teachers do. I mean, that's the leave an impression for a lifetime. That's really that's awesome. Right. Uh, now, have you? Uh, what's your favorite place to travel? Like, uh, have you traveled a lot with your band and music performances? Any any particular place that uh, that you would regard as your favorite place? Well, I, I, I've traveled. I've traveled a lot domestically uh, with different bands. Although I don't think we ever did a conventional tour, but but. Uh, I haven't been back to New Orleans since the 70s, but that was probably the, the wildest music music city that I played. But I really enjoyed living in Los Angeles. I lived there for five, six, no, actually seven years. And that's a wonderful music uh, town. And then New York City is a great city, and I go back and forth. I play there occasionally. And, and Boston's a good music town. Uh, but so is London. I've been to London uh, mostly, mostly just... Uh, on for, for vacation, but that's a that's a wonderful uh, that's a wonderful music town. That's yeah, good. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of places I really enjoy. There is, I guess, there isn't one favorite though. Gotcha. Uh, and uh, the other question that comes up is uh, in your career, were there any particular books that uh, you have gifted or reread over the years that you would like to recommend? Well, it uh, again, it would depend on on the. Um, I mean, for music, right behind me is this huge library of uh, of titles about or by famous musicians. You know, memoirs and stories. And uh, boy, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I've I've read so many books by about or by the Beatles, uh, or Beatle authors. So if if it comes to uh, music. Um, Gosh, I, there's so many Beatles, so many books about the Beatles that that, that I've loved. Um, but when it comes to management consulting, it's a whole different uh, it's a whole different world. When I think about just uh, political books and 
Boy, I mean, I'm, I'm almost, I'm almost stumped. Um, well, fair enough. And if anything comes to your mind, uh, we can always add it to the show notes later on. Uh, so, so let's get into uh, the management consulting aspect of it. So you said there was a point in your career, in your life, uh, uh, not only for financial measures, but you also decided that that was the path that appealed to you at that point. And so you went into management consulting. So what was that transition like for you? How did you make that transition? And uh, can you tell us your early successes or failures that stuck with you and how did you navigate that and what lessons would you say you learned from it, uh, having uh, done that transition successfully? Yes, I guess I guess it started in, in, in the late seventies. I, I was very much interested in just the whole consciousness expansion kind of consciousness raising movement, and I did a lot of uh, programs and disciplines. I, I guess it started with transcendental meditation with the Maharishi in mm-hmm. the late. 80s, I'm sorry, late 60s, of course, following the Beatles, because they did it, so I had to do it. And then um, I did something called uh, Rolfing, which was a, a deep tissue massage that um, I, I learned from Joseph Heller in the early 1970s in Venice, California. And um, that that spawned a lot of other kinds of, um, of, of body disciplines. And then I did the S training, which was um, all the rave in the seventies. Yeah, with one other heart. Yeah, yeah, one other heart. And then, and I liked it so much. And it was, it, I think, at that point in my life, I'd been playing music for a long time, and uh, there was some, there was something missing. I loved playing music. I loved the, I loved the artistic environment. I loved the other musicians, but I also, re- I, I missed a kind of uh, conscious, uh, serious mindset when. I, when I left acad- academia, I left behind something that I really missed, which was a um, alert, rigorous, smart, alive people. And I found that around S, and I was so captivated by it that I actually led seminars in that system for 10 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> and through that system, I wound up starting or be- being part of a management consultancy. And... Um, and we did some of that kind of work in it, and then we branched out and did a, a lot of it. the the uh, consulting firm was was owned by a therapist, and we did all kinds of different thing. I'm sure we crossed the line a few times between therapy and business <laughs> consulting, um, but that really got me into the consulting world. So um, so in the 80s is is really where that launched, and um, we lucked in we lucked out by getting a by getting a foothold in a computer maker in Massachusetts called Digital Equipment Corporation, which was a mini computer maker, and it was the second largest computer company in the world, second to IBM. And it really had a great run between the late 70s and the early 90s. And um, we worked with a lot of the top managers and leaders in that company. And that's kind of where I learned my trade, where I made my mistakes and where I I, I learned what worked and what didn't work, working with a lot of uh, computer executives. So I, I kind of got my, I got my um, my stripes, I think, in the high tech world in the uh, in the eighties in the Boston area. No, that is so great, and that brings up a lot of questions here for me. And uh, so you've also worked with uh, 
not only Werner Erhard, but uh, Tom Peters and Fernando Flores and Peter Sangre. So uh, could you tell us what was that experience like or what were some of the lessons would you say you learned from some of these uh, uh, legends uh, of the business and self-help movement? Let's start with maybe Werner Erhard. What was like the biggest takeaway for you with the work you did with him and uh, uh, S training? And I believe... Uh, to, I mean, I've done the Landmark Forum. It's uh, it's kind of evolved into uh, Landmark Education now over the years. But uh, uh, and and I've led uh, a few uh, leadership workshops for them as well. And oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, no, that's that's fascinating. You mentioned that. So uh, so what was uh, what was that biggest takeaway for you from Werner uh, uh, Erhard's work? Well, probably a couple, but the main one is seeing life as so much of what people argue about are interpretations and appreciating that 99% of life is your perception or interpretation. It's very valuable, especially when you go into organizations and you realize that people are talking about a particular way they see the world rather than the truth. And that's been really useful for me in my uh, executive coaching and consulting. I, I always want to get a sense of how, how people see the world and um, their perceptions of the world, which usually line up with the actions they take. So if you understand somebody's worldview, you understand how the world occurs to those people, you understand their perceptions, the, their actions are pretty logical. So if you want to change somebody's actions, understand how they see the world, understand their interpretations of things. I think that's my main takeaway from that. No, that's really uh, profound and beautiful. It's uh, it's like the context is what defines everything. It's not the content. And uh, there is a great book, I believe, recently that came out maybe not too long ago, three to five years ago, uh, by uh, Steve Zaffron called The Three Laws of Performance that, that exactly yes. highlights that aspect what you just shared no that's that's uh, beautiful i know steve yes i know steve yeah i've worked with him okay great excellent and then um uh, what about fernando flores what was uh, that experience like and what did you take away from him well fernando flores is a fascinating uh man who started his he was he was an academic originally and um he wound up the minister of finance in, in Chile under uh, Salvatore Allende, who was the first democratically elected socialist mm. in South America. And he, when there was an overthrow of Allende, um, Flores was in prison, but he had such a reputation internationally as a scholar that um, a lot of the academic community intervened and sprung him, and he came to the U.S. and uh, I think got some graduate, some maybe his doctorate or something. I think it, I think he studied uh, he, between studying and teaching. He's he's associated with with Berkeley and, and Stanford, I believe, and he he came up with this kind of methodology based on speech acts, which. I see now is I see it everywhere in in business, but I but it really got a start in the early '80s, and uh, he would um, he he really trained me in 
how to focus on um, speech acts that basically requests and promises. Is I'm going to I make a commitment to you. I'm going to do something by a particular time, and that's that's really the how how things get get done in the world and certainly in business. You you make a promise. You don't call it a promise necessarily. You say I'm just going to do that, or I'm going to get this report to you by five o'clock Monday, or I'm going to call you on Tuesday morning. But people often don't realize that the, the basic. Um, it's really basically made up of two parts is I, I'm going to do X by time Y and people often don't clarify what the X is or they're slippery about the time Y and um, civilizations crumble because people don't keep promises and that's what I learned from Fernando Flores something very profound and, and I, I teach it everywhere now No, that's great sounds like uh, no ambiguity in conversations and and having more action-oriented statements versus uh, uh, wishy-washy and v- vague statements. It's like uh, it's the Yoda concept of uh, there is either uh, do or not do or there's no try or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. And then uh, Peter Senge, the fifth discipline. What was uh, what was the biggest takeaway for you from that uh, discipline? Well, he. Uh, he wrote he wrote this book called The Fifth Discipline, and around the same time, I was invited to uh, work with his company for about a year and a half. I was doing some coaching of, of a team there, and basically, I just they just it, it was as if I was I was a virtual employee, but I was actually an external coach. And um, I ran the public training department for a while there. And I, I this this one one of his uh, teachings is about team learning. And you can have a, a bunch of smart individuals, but they they can still make up a dumb team. <laughs> or you can have you can have you know fairly uh, capable uh, team members who, because they work so well together, they wind up as a very smart team. And I I began to appreciate uh, team dynamics and how to turn a um, a team of bright individuals into a high performance team. And I think I learned a lot of that in my brief time working with uh, Peter Senge and his company. Uh, that's, uh, that's great. It's uh, really systems thinking, isn't it? It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome. And then finally, last but not the least, Tom Peters, I believe uh, you wrote on his uh, blog for a while, did you not? Yeah, he, he has a... Uh, He's not quite as active with it now because uh, I think ever ever since uh, he joined the Twitter sphere, um, he doesn't. I don't think he blogs much, but uh, he had a very active blog in the early 2000s, and uh, we used to get uh, you know 20,000 hits in a day, and he would let me blog on that as well, and it was it was fun to be able to write up something and and have you know hundreds of responses to it but but Tom Peters himself was and is a uh, he, he's really a one of a kind I think he's he's famous for his first book um, which uh, well his more recent bestseller is reimagine in search of excellence was his first book back in the 1980s but then he started writing books about wow teams and um, 
how to put a team or organization together that is wildly creative and um, uh, passionate and enthusiastic and result-obsessed and uh, brand-aware. That actually gave me the idea for my book in the making and my website because I realized all of those qualities I had witnessed 20 years earlier in the bands that I opened up with, all the famous bands, you could almost go down the list, uh, and the Beatles being the best example, in terms of their passion, their creativity, their uh, their uh, brand awareness, their uh, how, how mission-driven they were, how independent thinking they were, how they were able to harness conflict. It was like almost a check-the-box thing when I realized that. So that was that was really eye-opening, and I saw that probably about 15 years ago. No, that's incredible. So let's talk about uh, your upcoming book, uh, uh, John. So tell us about the six business uh, lessons from rock that can be applied to uh, corporations and businesses. And if you could walk us down through uh, those that list of six and give us some examples, I think that would be fascinating. Great. Yeah, so it, it basically... Um, what I just described in terms of the, the six success attributes of successful teams and bands, because um, a rock band is a really a small business team. And in business, you can apply them to businesses as a whole, but also businesses are made up of small teams. So whether it's a small business or a large business, it's still made up of teams. So it's kind of a focus on how do you develop teams that are, that are passionate, uh, enthusiastic, exuberant. That's one. And um, I talk about in, in, in the music sphere, that would be bands like the Beatles, who were certainly, uh, they were so enthusiastic. They got their, they, they got, they got their record deal. Uh, with with Polydor Records back in 1962, not because they were that good on their instruments, but they so impressed the engineer and the recording engineer and the producer Norman Smith and George Martin that they said these guys are these guys are, these guys are crazy these guys are funny, and they just they just knocked them over with their enthusiasm and their charisma, and um, and I see that in a lot of uh, well, you, you can feel that with companies sometimes where you make contact with the company on the phone or in person and you're, you're over, you're blown away by their enthusiasm like Zappos. Um, you know, you do, you talk to them on the phone and suddenly you want to, you want to talk to them some more. You want, you want to buy their product. So enthusiasm, so that's enthusiasm, that's passion. Another one is creativity or Innovation. Uh, the Beatles again are a great uh, example of that, um, but uh, so are a lot of other uh, bands. The, the Grateful Dead. Uh, they just love to play. There's a, a, a playfulness about great bands and great business teams. Uh, there's a book called Serious Play, which is all about let's let's be serious about our play, but make sure that we continue to play. Let's make sure that work work is play, and play and play requires creativity. Um, a third one is 
being competent in the area of con of conflict, not being afraid of conflict, mm. honest, exploiting it, um, not being not not being afraid of it. So you can you can face it. You can have you can have people around you that differ, but also you're there's some boundaries around it, so it doesn't get out of control, and people don't wind up beating each other up. And the good bands were great examples of that. Uh, Fleetwood Mac, when they reconstituted themselves in the 19, in 1975 as a pop music band, instead of a, they started as a blues band, but Fleetwood Mac, um, they used, uh, they, um, they took in uh, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks, and they became a very creative part of the band. And at that point, there were five members of the band, two couples, and the two couples began to break up their relationships just as the band was recording its first album and touring on its first album. And the, the, basically the band almost broke apart because there was so much interpersonal conflict, but the interpersonal conflict fueled these amazing songs. In fact, uh, a lot of famous Fleetwood Mac songs came from, came from the disintegration of the two marriages in that in that band, um, "Go Your Own Way" was a, a huge hit by uh, Fleetwood Mac at the time, um, and it was all about you know Lindsay writing to uh, Stevie writing to Lindsay about um, how how she was hurt by him, but they wouldn't break up the band because they realized they were onto something, so they wound up using that. And it became, you know, a phenomenally famous band. The Who was another band that that uh, Roger Daltrey and Peter Townsend never really got along as as buddies. They were always fighting. Sometimes they had fist fights. Now we don't advocate that in in business, but they uh, they were at each other's throats. But they but they learned how to use it. Same thing with the Cream. The the, the Cream were. Uh, uh, Eric Clapton and Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce were, were famously uh, at each other's throat all the time, except that made some of the most compelling kind of blues that we heard coming out of the 1960s. And then, and then there, there are a lot of, band, a lot of um, companies that, that use that kind of creative tension. And Apple, um, Steve Jobs, was always uh, kicking up dust with people, and he wanted people to argue with him, and he wanted he wanted that kind of creative conflict. And you could say that that might have been what what was the the secret of Apple was the contentiousness between the teams, and it's it's also the case with Google and so so many high tech bands. Anyway, th- three more examples, uh, three more um, um, success attributes: being aware of of your brand is so important in, in music, you have to stand out from the pack. You can't be like everybody else. And the Grateful Dead made their, I think, a brand statement with the kind of jamming that they did. And people associate the band with going to a happening in the, in the 1970s, 1980s, and well into the 1990s before Jerry Garcia passed away. Grateful Dead events Grateful Dead concerts were events, and everybody went to the went to the concerts to see other people as well as the dead, because it was such a it was such a happening. And um, 
I, there were a lot of other bands that, that that appreciated that as well. And and there were a lot of companies that took brand very seriously and realized that the brand needs to come from the people and then it's going to be expressed externally, but there has to be a connection between the inside brand and the outside brand. And the best bands absolutely did that very organically. And the most successful companies like Apple, like uh, like Google, the the brand that you the brand that you get to witness from the outside is the same. It's it's really what's going on inside. With, with the case of Apple, you've got um, you've got a you've got a wild, creative, innovative group, and what people see with Apple products is. They, they see that kind of fun and that joy and that lightness and that creativity as part of the external brand. And then the fifth one is being mission-driven and result-focused. And uh, the Beatles and the Stones were my examples for that. The Stone, Rolling Stones, they had a big mission, which was they wanted to, re- to bring rock and roll back after rock and roll died in the, in the late 1950s. They decided that they wanted to, they wanted to put it back on the map, and they did. And the Beatles wanted to be bigger than Elvis. That was their that was their mission. And that that anytime they had a decision to make, they would they would ask themselves, "What's going to make us bigger than Elvis?" And that was very real for them. And um, and a lot of companies have outrageous missions and uh, vision, um, whether it's to be um, to have all the information available to you at the tips of your fingers, or uh, uh, you know the, the big hairy audacious goal that is that is something that you learn from rock and roll but it's also true in um, in corporate America if you don't have a goal that's going to unify the workforce and make them excited to get out of bed in the morning you know why do it and then lastly being independent and autonomous uh, I use the Dixie Chicks as an example uh, of a of a band that, that they weren't going to take any guff from anybody and they cut out on their own path. And um, I think they got even bigger for all of the controversy that they generated. Um, the Beach Boys fired their manager, who was their father, <laughs> early on. They were basically doing everything that their dad told them. And finally, Brian Wilson fired his dad. And then the and then the. Beach Boys became uh, a very innovative kind of band, and you see that kind of autonomy, autonomous teams with the great, the great companies that, that they 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 had they had they put together skunkwork teams that were going that had some kind of autonomy to create products, and um, a lot of product teams in manufacturing are given a lot of autonomy and independence, um, so that they can basically. They, they, they don't want people telling them what to do. They have to, they know this, but they know the specs that they need to deliver, but, you know, leave us alone and we'll deliver it on time. And, and there's plenty of examples of that in, uh, in mainstream business. So anyway, those were the six uh, success qualities that, um, that I write about a lot in my blog and uh, in my upcoming book. No, that's, uh, that's an excellent synopsis of, the six successful traits, and just to recap here, uh, basically the first one, enthusiasm and charisma and passion for yep. uh, for the work you do, and then it's the second one being creative and uh, innovation, 
and uh, the third one being competent, but not only competency, but uh, encouraging conflict. And it reminds yeah. me of this great book by uh, Doris Kearns. Uh, she wrote a book called Team of Rivals yes. Yes. Uh, with Abraham Lincoln's uh, presidency as an example. And uh, and so did uh, President Barack Obama having, uh, you know, challenging point of views in his inner circle that would uh, question assumptions and that could forward think, you know, create forward thinking with any, uh, you know, any causes or challenges they might be dealing with at that point. And then. Uh, the next one you said is brand awareness, and then uh, and I, I want to get to that here in a second. And the next, uh, the fifth one being mission driven and results oriented. So having a big, hairy, audacious goals that uh, it's like the moonshot, like John F. Kennedy, yeah. like you're putting the man on the moon kind of a thing. And nobody knew how, but it, there was that uh, vision and a mission that got everybody uh, inspired to. Uh, do that same with the Declaration of Independence. Uh, that might be another example uh, uh, that we can quote here. And then finally, uh, independent and autonom- uh, autonomy to kind of you know trade your own path and uh, yeah, basically uh, be uh, constraint free, so you can free to be and free to act. Uh, now that sounds. Uh, Really fascinating. So talk, talk to us about brand awareness. Now, have you, from your musical career and musical exposure with different bands, why is branding so important? I mean, uh, of course, uh, there is that concept of brand loyalty and then that, you know, what sets you apart from everybody else. But why why is that so critical? And how can one go about finding what one's brand is, or how do you define a brand in your view? Well, a brand is what makes you distinct from the competition. And um, and starting in music, in all the groups that I was in, I, I was in a lot of them, They, we always strove to separate ourselves from the pack. We weren't, even if we, we couldn't claim they, that, that we, we were better from everybody else, but we could legitimately claim we were different. And then there's a, a wonderful phrase called the different isn't always better, mm. but better is always no women. We don't need to do that one. <laughs> good. Um, you've, you've got to be different. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, you can be, you can be different. Different isn't always better, but better is always different. And um, I always, uh, I, I, I counsel business teams and and individuals to find out what is different about what they do. What, what do they love to do that separates themselves from the pack? Because otherwise, how are they going to notice you? Whether whether we're talking about a product that you're putting out or whether we're talking about you. How are you gonna? How are you gonna separate yourself from the pack so people just notice you, let alone uh, want to work with you or buy your products? Yeah, no, that's uh, that's absolutely important, and especially in today's uh, marketplace, which is saturated with so many options and so many products and services, and uh, yeah, branding becomes uh, one of the most important factors, and of course, uh, it can be the only one. And that's why we have these other five to go with it. Uh, and right. so, so have you come across companies that are utilizing these traits, all of them successfully? Or what's, what's available as a result of 
applying these uh, six traits of success in a business. And uh, so I know it's a mouthful there with a lot of questions, but can you, can you kind of like paint us a picture of what's available and what's possible for a company, for an organization when they start applying these uh, traits and principles? Well, well, well the, it's easy to look at the successful examples because they're the biggest companies in the world. I mean, um, you can always fall back on, on high tech. If you think about Apple and you think about Google and you think about Facebook and you think about Amazon, they all have outrageously distinct brands and and they're always trying to you know carve out even further uh, distinction but uh, I think it's I think it's pretty easy to see um, how how the successful companies exemplify brand but there's there's all the others that don't, and that's why they don't come to mind <laughs> because they haven't been able to clarify what is their saleable distinction. What they, they haven't been able to, they haven't been able to let people know why they should come to that company versus another company. In other words, the service that company A provides needs to be distinct. It needs to be something that they're not going to get somewhere else. And yep. It's kind of mental, but it's true. Yeah, and and some of these are intangibles, but then it also has uh, it also has a definite positive impact on the bottom line, doesn't it? Uh, with uh, employee engagement, customer loyalty, and then uh, you know uh, employee turnover. Uh, some of those factors also uh, get positively impacted because of these. Principles. No, uh, I totally agree with you on that. Now, let me ask you this, uh, and this this goes back to uh, just a hypothetical question. You know, having worked with all these companies and having had these, uh, having had a successful musical career, uh, and worked with so many different bands, there. When you look back at your life, what would you say is your definition of a successful life, or a good life, or a happy life? Hmm. Well, it has, it has to have something to do with service. Um, I want to know that uh, that when I when I check out when I check out of this uh, this incarnation, I want to know that um, that I gave everything and that um, I was able to leave the world in a better place than I encountered. And um, I think that. Most people, I really think that most people want to make a difference, whether they know it or not. You scratch beneath the surface, and I think that's true for everybody. So if I can help other people make a difference and be fulfilled and provide the gift that they have to give to the world, then I think I've done my job. So that's... I guess that's the standard I hold myself to. And if I'm working with someone in a company, I want to make sure that that I'm unlocking for them whatever I need, whatever needs to get freed up for them to make the difference that they can make in their company with their team, with their uh, suppliers, and ultimately with their customers. Well, that's beautifully said. I uh, really like that. 
And here's a hypothetical uh, situation for you, John. Let's go back to uh, Yale for a moment uh, in your early 20s. And uh, and if you, so we're going back in time here and you had the opportunity to talk to your young self. What advice would you give him? Wow. Well, see, the problem is the young self wouldn't have listened. <laughs> um, but um, I don't know. I, I can't. It, it, all the mistakes were seem to be so on purpose that all the mistakes and even and all the heartbreaks and all the failures seem to lead me uh you know the long and winding road. It it it, uh, it led me to where I am today, and I really don't have I don't really don't have regrets about where I am. And like I was telling someone recently, I'm happier now than I've ever been, and I do feel that my life is just beginning. And uh, I hope I have an opportunity uh, for the next. 10 or 20 years to continue to make it to make a difference with people because I feel like I'm just I'm just I'm just learning what I need to learn now <laughs> no, that's, I, no, I that's beautiful really beautiful uh, switching gears here and then uh, we're going to get into the rapid fire round I've got a few questions for you and before uh, we wrap it up and so um, my first question to you uh, John is are you ready for the rapid fire round I am I am <laughs> all right okay so well, the first question that comes to mind is, who's your favorite music band? It's the first response that comes to your mind. The Beatles. All right. Uh, what is, what's one thing you can do that might surprise other people? One thing I can do. I'm a really good parallel parker. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so the next question, whose brain would you like to pick? Uh, uh, alive or deceased? Doesn't matter. Oh, that, that's that's tough. Um, uh, oh my God, uh, I would love to go back and uh, and pick the brain of uh, Epictetus. Okay. Okay. I would love to, but then I mean, you know, uh, a, a Christ, Lao Tzu, and the Buddha are right are right there. Excellent. <laughs> uh, the next question is: If you could have witnessed one event in history. What would that be? Oh, oh, you're killing me here. You're killing me because <laughs> I'm torn between the, uh, you know, the famous historical event. I, I mean, I, I would have loved to to been in, you know, in Jerusalem uh, 2000 years ago. But at the same time, I'd also love to be, you know, 4 B.C. in Athens. And 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 frankly, this you know, I would love to be in Germany in 1935 and, 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 and see some of the things that were going down. Um, and I would love to be, uh, be, be walking along the Liverpool streets with John and Paul as they were, you know, creating the vision of the Beatles. So, you know, I can't pick one. <laughs> Fair enough. And then uh, if you could ask God one question, what would that be? Oh, one question. Am I going to continue past this life 
as a individual soul or will I be simply poured into the mass of consciousness? Mm. And then finally, and this is just again a hypothetical situation here, if you could have any message of your choice on a billboard, what would that be? It could be your favorite quotation, it could be a message, it could be, uh, you know, uh, one word that comes to mind, it could be anything. So what, what comes up for you? Well, I guess it would be something, something Epictetus said, and this comes, it, he, he, you'll read this different ways because it's, you know, it's, it's translated from the Greek, but uh, the trouble... Let's see. Uh, what, what bothers men's minds is not events in themselves, but the way they think about them. Mm, I like that. I really like that. It's it's really uh, the interpretation of events. Yes. Uh, no, that's that's uh, fascinating. And then final section, I've got the last three questions for you here. And the first one is, John, what is your current personal or business passion project that you're working on and what are you looking forward to in the next six months to a year from now? Well, I'm working with a vitamin company right now in their manufacturing operation and um, I want to, by the time I finish, I want to make sure that the um, that the uh, operation is really operating on all cylinders and I can say that this is a high performance team. When I leave, and I love I love the manufacturing environment, by the way, and I love to enter a manufacturing environment and leave knowing that that operation is going to run differently now because people relate to each other differently in that operation, you know, coming down to teamwork. Mm. Oh, that's great. And uh, what are three things you are grateful for in life? Uh, a wonderful upbringing, uh, wonderful mother and father. That that would be that would be number one. And then maybe whatever the gene I got that made me curious to explore so many things. I got involved in so many interesting and unusual learning experiences. I mean, my 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 learning resume is runs pages and pages. I mean, I, I, I just, I w- I've always wanted to um, undertake so many different things. So, so I'm, ver- I'm grateful for that uh, curiosity gene. And, um, and I'm just grateful that, uh, I guess the last thing is I'm grateful that I have had the good sense to take care of myself and eat well so that now that I've now that I've in my 80th decade, I'm 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 in my 70s now, my 80th decade. Um, I feel better and clearer than I have at any point in the past, and I think a lot of that comes to taking care of yourself and especially paying attention to what you eat. No, that's that's really great and inspiring. So I want to take a moment here to acknowledge you, John, for a few things. One is um, 
Listening to you share your story and your journey, which is really inspiring, but what really sticks out for me is your commitment to service, uh, be it through music, be it through management consulting, be it uh, through just your creative self-expression. I mean, it is so inspiring. And the fact that you were able to compile uh, the gist of everything that you learned through all these different disciplines into an upcoming book so that people can benefit from it and apply it to their lives, to their organizations, to their communities. Uh, I mean, that is really uh, really inspiring. And uh, I'm really glad that you took the time to be on this program. So thank you so much for for what you're doing and who you're being and uh, what you're uh, creating in the world. Well, thank, thank you, Kyle. I really pre- I appreciate the acknowledgement. Uh, it's, it's truly my pleasure. And one final question, and this is how we wrap up all our interviews, and that is, why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends? Well, well first of all, I, I thought you were going to say, being a guest on your show is so interesting because your questions that you ask me um, – take me places I, I didn't expect to go. So I would think that, I guess if people are listening, if they can imagine you asking them those questions, that would be the great takeaway, which I guess I, I, I assume they do. I mean, because you're asking, you're asking questions that catch people off guard. And uh, if the listener is answering the questions that you're asking for themselves, then they're going to come out of that experience differently, than, different from how they entered the experience. Now, that's, uh, that's an awesome compliment. I appreciate that. And uh, again, thank you so much for your time and uh, amazing uh, conversation here. I really appreciated it. And for everybody listening, with that, we'll wrap it up. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Carl Aras. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to wisdomoffriends.net to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content. We hope you'll pass along our web address, wisdomoffriends.net, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archive section on the website for previous episodes and subscribe on iTunes, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank Thank you. you. This has been a Seven Symphonies production Join us next time for another edition of The Wisdom of Friends.